Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. So today we have an amazing guest, Dr. Rena Malik. She is a urologist based in Baltimore, and she's an expert in basically all things, both men and female pelvic health. So today we're talking a lot about penises. Get ready. Hold on to your hats. We're talking about vasectomies. We're going to be also covering a bit of content on circumcision, which can be a very kind of controversial topic. So we're going to get the information that we need to know. And I'm really excited to go there with you, Dr. Malik. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. Welcome. I'm excited to talk for, you know, 45 minutes about penises. (laughs) So we obviously have to have you back because you also are an expert in like pelvic medicine, reconstructive surgery. You help with, you know, surgeries for incontinence and prolapse. So that's a whole other realm. But today we're talking about penises. So let's talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So where do we start? We had so much interest in this topic of vasectomies. And I feel like, Alexia, I feel like you need to start with the story of your mother-in-law being like so surprised that your husband is open to getting one. Yeah. So yeah, just recently she was, you know, we were chatting and kind of, uh, she just asked me, you know, Oh, I, you know, personal question, but are you, you know, after you're done having kids, are you going to, are you going to get, um, your tubes tied? And I was like, Oh no, like Adam will get a vasectomy. Like all of my friend's husbands have had vasectomies that are done having kids. And like, that's definitely the way we're going. And she was shocked. And I mean, my mom had, you know, her tubes tied after she was done having kids. And is it is that right to say like tubal ligation is the formal way, but do they still say tubes tied? Or is that not? Yeah, that's kind of the clo- <laughs> that's kind of the clo- colloquial colloquial term okay. for tubes, okay. you know, getting your tubes tied. Great, great. So I mean, yeah, she was just shocked. And I think I guess it's the best place to start is like the changing of the times, because it seems like it's shifted into, you know, more vasectomies is at least in my world. Like I, I've heard all of my friends' husbands getting them done. They also do them, um, on master's weekend. So like right before master's weekend, they, it's like a thing and they choose that's when they're getting their vasectomy. So when they're out on the couch, you know, not able to move, which I also would love to know if that's false. Like what's the recovery like really like for all the women? They're milking it. They're totally milking it. Totally <laughs> so, so I guess to start off, yes, vasectomies are becoming more common in the United States. Generally speaking, we have been traditionally the lowest rate of vasectomies in the world when you look at the number of vasectomies. So, um, you know, the data is a little bit old, but it used to be about one in 10 men. So 10% of men in the U.S. get a vasectomy, whereas in Canada and the U.K., it's 20%. And other countries, it's even more than that. Um So it's about 500,000 vasectomies a year overall in the United States. And, you know, I think there's a lot of 
reason why there's this hesitation to get vasectomies. There's a lot of misinformation and fear around getting vasectomies. There's people who believe that this might affect their masculinity. They may have issues with sex, sexual function afterwards. Um, and then just the fear of being sterilized. Like, oh, what if I get another partner and I want to have another baby down the line? Like, is this the end of the road? And, and, and there's a lot of fear surrounding those things. Um, and so, you know, those are kind of big fear inducers. And then, you know, sometimes it's easy for a woman to get a tubal if she's already getting a C-section and, you know, you're already there, then it's a little bit easier, but otherwise it's a much bigger thing and more invasive and more dangerous has more risk of complications than a vasectomy. So vasectomy generally safer, as effective and, and, and has less complications. So um, I think it's really a lack of knowledge and, and a little bit of fear. Like so many medical procedures, right? But it's, it's the whole conversation of like, well, birth control is the woman's job. You know, like, I feel like that's kind of hopefully beginning to shift. And I am curious to know, I mean, we're both in Canada, so it's interesting that we've got double the number of men getting vasectomies here, 20% versus 10. I mean, we're, there's the fear, like, yeah, I guess, when did we start even doing vasectomies? Like, when did, like, in what decade did this become more common? You know, it's been, I mean, it's been around for some time and the techniques have changed a little bit over time. I don't remember, I don't know the exact year or decade we started doing them, but they, we've been doing them for many, many decades. And, and generally it's a pretty minimally invasive procedure. So what we do in a vasectomy is we make a small cut in the scrotum after giving you some numbing medication. So some local anesthetic you're awake. And that's the only poke you're going to feel is that numbing medication. After that, you might feel some tugging, some pulling, but overall it's not really painful um, and then essentially what we're doing during that procedure is we're taking the vast deferent, which is essentially the highway from the testicle to the, you know, to the seminal vesicles and out to the urethra where the sperm will then travel to come out with your semen. And so we're essentially cutting that highway and taking a small piece of the vast deferent and removing it so that that's no longer connected. And there's, you know, different techniques and different ways to do it, but really it's minimally invasive, very tiny, very quick. The whole thing takes 20 to 30 minutes and, and the recovery, as you asked earlier, takes about, you know, a couple days, two or three days where you're, you know, kind of hanging out, relaxing. And so that's why people do it around master's weekend. March madness is very big here in the U S everyone's trying to get their vasectomies in before March madness. And um, a lot of urology practices push for that because it's a great time to get people in and, and get those procedures done. Um, and so, yeah, it does take a couple days. And then after that, you, you can go back to work and then usually you'll need to abstain from sex or any heavy physical activity for at least a week, maybe two, depending on how you feel. Is it covered by insurance? Like, I mean, I know it probably differs by country, but what's it, what's the protocol in the U S cause I know that's where you're practicing. Yeah. So usually it is covered by insurance, but the cost, if it isn't, or if your insurance doesn't cover all of it can be about, you know, 500 to a thousand dollars. It just depends, but usually it is covered by insurance. That's not very expensive. And on the flip side, if you were to go for like a tubal ligation, ligation, getting your tubes type, you need to be under general anesthetic, I presume. Exactly, which adds a lot of cost to the expense. You have an anesthesiologist, you have a general anesthetic, you have, you know, OR time, which is really expensive. Um, so adding all those things up makes it a much more expensive procedure, not to mention more invasive. Yeah. Yeah. And in comparison with being more invasive, like 
comparing to a vasectomy and then if a woman who isn't just having a c like isn't having a c-section getting her tubes tied in within that procedure time timing what is the you know how invasive is it what's the recovery time in comparison to a vasectomy so yeah, the the I don't do tubal ligations, but essentially it's an intra-abdominal procedure. Usually they'll do it laparoscopically, meaning they put small cuts in the belly and they'll use little instruments that are um, that are smaller that will go in through these little ports, and then they'll cut the tubes and um, and burn the ends, kind of similar to what we do with the vasectomy, but it's you know in the abdomen where your bowels are and your other organs are, and you know you have to move those out of the way and make sure you don't injure them, and um, and so the recovery is is not. Um, it, it's not horrible, but probably you're going to have to take a little bit longer time before you can get back to normal activities because you did make a cut in the belly, which is different than making a cut in the scrotum. Right. Yeah. No right. kidding. And being under general <laughs> anesthetic. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, okay. So what, what is a lot of people were like, does it act, does a vasectomy work? Like a lot of, that was like a really common, and I sent you some of them beforehand. A lot of people are like, is it yeah. really that effective? You know, like they're very concerned that it's, you know, that it, they've heard stories of like one getting through, you know, <laughs> surprise <laughs> yeah, baby. So, they, so if you, after you get a vasectomy, the key is that you have to follow up and get a semen analysis to make sure that the vasectomy worked. So without that, yes, it could be less effective because you didn't actually confirm that the vasectomy worked. Um, and so, you know, the, the two ends of the vas deferens could connect back together or, you know, something like that. And so that can be a failure. But if you've done that, you've done the confirmation because it takes about 20 or so ejaculations before all the sperm is actually out of the system. So even after you get the vasectomy, you still have sperm in the semen for some time. So usually we'll say two months at least, you know, continue to use protection, get a semen analysis, make sure there's no firm in the semen analysis, and then you're good to go. Um, so if you follow those instructions, the rate of failure is like two in a hundred thousand. It's so rare. It's so, wow. so rare. So it's, it's almost a hundred percent effective, but you do have to follow those instructions. Wow. So I feel like that goes back to your, um, original comment around the misinformation around vasectomies, because if Nikki, that's your most common question that you got yeah. is the, how effective it is. Mm-hmm. That's so yeah. surprising. Well, I guess because people are like, yeah. they've heard stories of like, oh, but they got pregnant after a vasectomy. And, and I'm hearing like it probably happened because they had sex like right after or something. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. They probably didn't realize or they didn't get the post, post vasectomy. We, we call it a post vasectomy semen analysis. They probably didn't get that. Um, and maybe there was, you know, some recanalization of those ends. But if you've had that confirmation, there's an extremely rare, extremely rare to get a pregnancy after a vasectomy. And now let's talk about reversals. So first of all, do you have any information or data on how common it is that, that men will have, will request a reversal? And I actually have several friends who had to go through IVF because their husbands got, like they were previously married, they had gotten vasectomies and now they're with a new partner and they're, you know, trying to have kids and they're like, well, now we need to go through IVF. (laughs) Yeah, there's not a lot of good data on trends that I could find about reversals, but reversals can be effective. But what I tell people in the main take-home point is if you're getting a vasectomy, you need to be sure that you are done. While it is reversal, reversible, um, it's not something that you should do like 
you know, just because you think you're done, you should be done. You're like, I am done having kids and this is a hundred percent it. And yes, things happen in life. Your part, something happens to your partner, you remarry, whatever. But ultimately um, it's, it's a, it's an invasive procedure. It's more involved than a vasectomy. It, and this chance of success is variable. So it depends on how long it's been since your vasectomy and certain surgical factors as to how successful a reversal will be. It can be anywhere from, you know, 30% successful to 95% successful, depending on a range of factors. Uh, So I tell people, you know, you got to be sure, sure, sure. Most of the people who come are, you know, four or five kids deep, or they're like older and they're done. And, you know, they're like, we don't want to have any more kids. Have you ever had people in your practice, like where you're like, I don't think you're done. (laughs) That's what I was going to ask too. Like, do you do like a deep dive? I mean, like, okay, are you sure you're done? (laughs) Yeah, we we do make sure that they're sure, sure, like we kind of, you know, but ultimately, I think that one difference in how urologists treat vasectomies, whereas, you know, the the difference of uh, tubal ligations or decisions with women, it's it's a little less questioning, like you don't need to ask, I don't need to call his partner and be like, are you done? Whereas I feel like there's that concern in female decisions. Oh, did you talk to your partner and and this and that? And, you know, we asked them, of course, did you talk to your partner? But I do think there's like this double standard a little bit. Let's dive more into that. So you're saying, yeah, like what, what do you mean exactly? You think that like that women need to get permission, but men don't? Well, in some states it's required. Like, I don't know the specifics on that. I'm not an OBGYN, but in some like states, they, they want you to get permission and there's, you know, there's just different like rules about it. Whereas for men, it's, it's less. So, I mean, of course we have to go through the same informed consent process, which is we talk about the risks, the benefits, you have to tell us you understand them. And then you have to sign a permission slip that, you know, says that you agree to this procedure and that it means permanent sterilization. Um, but I do think there is a disparity. And again, I'm not an obstetrician, but I have heard these stories where it's, you know, there's there's a disparity. Women have to involve their partner more so than men do. Wild. Yeah, that is wild. And that's good to know. And it's interesting. I mean, we're getting an American physician perspective here. So it's, it's interesting that it's different for each state too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a lot of, a lot of our listeners are in the U S so this is good information to have. And maybe they would need to just ask like, what's the protocol? So they know what to expect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. Why aren't more people getting vasectomies then in your opinion? Well, I think the same issues are still pervasive, right? Men are worried about masculinity. They're worried about sexual function. Like, am I still going to enjoy sex? What's going to happen to my ejaculate afterwards? Am I still going to have orgasms? And all these things will remain the same. But people don't realize that, nor do they feel comfortable talking about it with their doctor. And, and that's a real a real problem, especially in the, in the male population in men, is that there's this real difficulty in bringing these intimate things up with their doctor. And it's difficult for everybody, but there's this like, oh, I'm a macho guy. I can't talk about these things. And there's these views of what masculinity is, which is not um, not really accurate, right? But it's kind of portrayed by media, by, you know, by everyone around us as this is what a macho man or an alpha male does, right? Yeah. And it's because it's so much more common that women you know, especially because we get paps and things like that, but that we have a physical every year and we see our doctor every year. And we're, you know, naturally, I think given the range of questions that 
we go into with our doctors because of the need for PAPs and things like that, our periods and whatever, we are more in touch probably from a younger age with that. But I, I know that like, you know, a bunch of my guy friends until they're like 40, they don't see a regular physician every year for physicals. And then once you hit 40 and you have to get certain, you know, tests done and procedures or whatever, then, or a vasectomy, like then it starts to happen. But that's, yeah, it's such a great point because, um, and, and, and must be, you know, culturally or not culturally, but just, you know, out there of the media and things like that, that it's not, um, as common for men to be as interested in their health or want to know as much as women do in terms of, uh, their health. So it's, it's really interesting that link between that and vasectomies and asking those questions. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to like what we're taught in school. Sexual education is just really lacking, right? You learn like, oh, you're going to menstruate as a woman. Here's how you put on a condom, but there's no discussion about like societal issues, cultural issues that people struggle with on a regular basis. And guys can go their whole lives without seeing a urologist, right? They may never get a chance to ask those questions. And primary care doctors, they do the best they can. They've got to take care of the whole person. They can't, you know, they don't have enough time to cover every little detail and God bless them for being great at what they do, but it's, it's tough, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears here because I'm the nerd and that's like a science geek. Well, I try to, be, I'm like a pseudo science geek. I'm obviously, anyways, long story short, I came across and this, I just found this. It's let's get the data. Old, it's an old, I know she knows, she knows where I'm going with this from the journal of urology from 1995. So this is like, obviously <laughs> super old. <laughs> Dr. Malik's like, okay, hit me with it. So basically, and you're probably familiar with this, this idea that vasectomy may cause a reduction in testosterone levels and that maybe this could be potentially related to, you know, elevated risk of prostate cancer. So what's the gist with that? Yeah, so that has not borne out in more recent data, but I love that you're a nerd and I love that you looked that up because I, I wish people would look up like journal articles and not like, I don't know, um, e-news about medical information, right? <laughs> Whatever so, Google's saying. So, uh, yeah. Just the headline. So, so I think, yeah, just read the headline. Um, and so anyways, no, there's no risk of lowering testosterone or prostate cancer with vasectomies. Getting a vasectomy will not change that risk. And we've looked at the data and it hasn't borne out to show that there's a higher risk of prostate cancer or any of those things. The, the thing about vasectomies is many men may perceive that their sexual function changes. There's, and because erectile function and sexual function is so multifactorial, one, about half of men over the age of 52 will have issues with erections. So it's very, very common. Wow. And then on top of it, it's extremely multifactorial. There's issues with like your brain can have a huge impact on how well you function, right? You can have a psychogenic impact of it and aging and other medical problems that are very common, like high blood pressure and diabetes will affect the blood flow to the penis, which will make you less likely to have erections and also lower your testosterone. So I think all of these things together, um, are happening at the same time. A lot of men get vasectomies. And so they're seeing these changes and they just happen to happen, happen to occur right around the same time. Ah, so it's like a confounding of many factors. So they, they were potentially going to blame it on like a vasectomy, but actually it might have to do with the, how they, they mentally feel and think psychologically about the procedure. That's what exactly. I'm Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah, okay. exactly. 
And it's a vicious cycle for these, these people who have issues with erections is they start having performance issues. They stress about the performance issues. They continue to stress. They continue to have performance issues. And it just cycles and cycles. So 50% over 52 have... <laughs> Unless he's like, time out. Wait, let's talk about this. We were going to go there, but we're going to go there. <laughs> we weren't going to go there, but I just need to ask. Like 50% over the age of 52 have erectile issues. How do you, and, and how, do, anyone who comes to you with those, because you you do work with uh, patients, What what is the next step? Like, what? how do you work with them? So we talk about kind of figuring out what the risk factors are. So, you know, do they have high blood pressure? Do they have diabetes? What's their relationship like? Are they having, you know, issues in their relationship? So we try to figure out what the cause might be. If it's a reversible cause, like psychogenic erectile dysfunction, we will talk to them, maybe refer them to a sex therapist or a psychologist to work on those issues. Um, if it's a issue about their other comorbidities, I'll tell them work on those, right? Try to get your blood pressure down, try to get your sugars under control, go see a doctor. If you haven't seen a primary care doctor, because sometimes it's the first time they're seeing a doctor, right? You need to see a doctor. This is the canary in the coal mine. It could be a sign that you have a problem with your heart or something else. So I tell all men, if you've got erectile dysfunction, go see your primary doctor because it could be a sign of something else. Um, it could be the first sign of something else. And then, you know, we go down the treatment pathway for erectile dysfunction, which is most often starting with medications um, like the Cialis, Viagra, those sorts of things, and then moving on to other things like vacuum pumps, injections, and, and surgeries if need be. Vacuum pumps. I have so many questions. I'm like, wait, what? Whole podcast episode. <laughs> and now we're talking about erectile dysfunction. On we go there. <laughs> no, but it, it we went there. We have to, but we need to definitely talk about this because I feel like this is obviously like. I mean, I, I don't know what the stats are on the the amount of drugs that are sold every year for Cialis and Viagra, but I presume it's high. I think you know that this is a big pervasive issue and you know, it, I think it, yeah, like this is. Are there things can also, men can do yeah. like in it to reduce the risk of by the time they're 50 plus having erectile dysfunction? Good question. I was rambling. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's just so <laughs> like, I, I, <laughs> We were not prepared for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, look, it's all about living. Whatever is good for your heart good for your erection. So the same things that you're told about to live a healthy lifestyle, eat a good, eat a, eat a healthy diet, whether it's Mediterranean, whole food, plant-based diet, um, work on, you know, exercising regularly 120 minutes a week. Um, you know, those sorts of things will improve your cardiovascular health and in turn make you less likely to develop erectile dysfunction and get good sleep. You know, I think that's so underrated, but getting good sleep keeps normal testosterone and, and helps you really just perform better in all areas. So I think in, in society, we're just sleep deprived. And I tell everyone seven or seven hours or more of good quality sleep. It is so underrated, right? It's especially mm -hmm. this day and age. I, I feel like so many people are trying to do use all other means to avoid having the seven hour sleep or plus a night. Extra or telling themselves they're great, like they're fine without it, you know, which right. is not like it's a very small percentage of the population that can actually sleep a little and, and, you know, function well. Yeah. That's not me. <laughs> so what, what, okay. 
what's good for your heart is good for your erection. I feel like that's a line that we need to remember. That's a big takeaway. Oh yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. That's going to be the tag. (laughs) That's going to be quote of the quote of the episode for sure. Um, Is there anything else we wanted? We do want to talk about um, circumcision before our time is, uh, is up. So um, this is like a very, a very big topic. So obviously, and, and full disclosure, Lexi and I both have sons. We've both done different things. We're obviously like, you do you, we're just going to figure this out. But it feels like, you know, that potentially some of the trends are shifting. At least that's what I was told. I asked the question, you know, I remember delivering my son in the hospital and I asked my midwives, I'm like, what, you know, what's the, how common are circumcisions, you know, with newborn baby boys? And she said that it may, may have been the fact that I was with midwives and not obstetricians. I don't know. But she said that it was decreasing like rapidly the number of, of boys who are getting circumcised um, and we're in Canada. So I'd love to learn more about like trends that you have, uh, you are aware of around the world. Yeah. At least in the United States, it's absolutely decreasing. Um, it, you know, it was more per, like kind of very commonplace. And I think due to, you know, he, this concern of, um, of sensitivity and things that people, and we can talk about that, but, but there's, you know, more, more knowledge, more people are trying to get idea, understanding the risks and benefits of circumcision, which is exactly what you should do, um, are deciding to, to not circumcise and, and leave their children, you know, foreskin intact. And, and again, it is a personal choice. That's still what's recommended by the guidelines that it's a personal choice to decide whether you want to circumcise your child or not. And there are benefits and risks and we can kind of go more into those. Yeah. I would love to hear, hear what those are like benefits and risks of both. Yeah. So benefits of a circumcision are one that you will reduce your risk of transmitting sexually transmitted infections. And that's because sometimes the foreskin can hold on to those particles a little more readily than, you know, someone who's not circumcised so that you can transmit those infections more commonly. It also reduces your risk of um, penile cancer, almost virtually eliminates that risk because most of it happens on the foreskin, although penile cancer is extremely rare. And another big one is it reduces your risk of urinary tract infections. So boys who get a circumcision have a risk of one in a thousand of getting a UTI, whereas those who don't are about one in a hundred. So it does reduce your risk of getting a UTI quite significantly. And then lastly, it reduces risk of complications as you age. So um, things like phimosis, where the foreskin doesn't retract, and that's normal up to a certain age for boys. So up to about the age of seven, if the foreskin doesn't retract, that's not a problem. But after that, it becomes a concern because you do need to retract it for hygiene purposes and make sure that you're um, seeing the glands and, and cleaning that area. Um, and also uh, reduces the risk of, uh, of, you know, basically issues with foreskin getting stuck um, when you do retract. And, and those are kind of more emergencies and things that do come up with foreskin issues. Interesting. And then risks are, you know, um, essentially there's risks of the procedure itself, which is about one to 2% where you might have some bleeding, some infection. There's a risk of taking too much or too little foreskin. If you take too much, that can um, create discomfort or difficulty getting, you know, uh, erections early on and usually stretches out over time. If you take too little, you can have, you know, not 
a happy cosmetic outcome, or you can get what's called adhesions where the, the foreskin actually um, can form little bands to the glands of the penis, and that needs to be repaired or corrected. Um, and so that may require a revision. And then in very rare circumstances, you can have injury to the penis itself or to the pee hole itself where it can narrow. And those are again, very, very rare. And the, the whole rate of complications, extremely rare, but those are, you know, risks. It was funny. One of the, not funny, but one of the questions we got was like, I have to, it was a woman, actually more of a comment. Someone said, I've got to go in for a revision of my son's circumcision. And I was thinking to myself, what does that even like, what does that mean? What does that look like? I guess maybe not enough foreskin was taken doesn't sound comfortable. Yeah. Usually that, or there's some adhesions, like the little bands that form and those need to be taken down. Those are usually the most common ones. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, So, I mean, my son's (laughs) circumcision, we, it was during COVID and my husband's Jewish. Um, and fun fact is the, the, um, who we had circumcising, uh, Clark, my son actually years ago back in Winnipeg, performed Adam's breasts and circumcised my husband, which we didn't even know. <laughs> and and Erica's chatting. And anyways, it was very full circle, as Nikki said, when circle of life moment. Circle yeah. of life. Circle of life. <laughs> really. Um, but we were in COVID because we'd just gone into lockdown when Clark was born. And so it was, you know, not a formal bris. I because I'm not Jewish, but he was there and and we zoomed in Adam's parents. It was very and it was very quick, seamless. And he's amazing. He's literally known as like the circumcision doc. Like he he does all the circumcisions in Toronto, at least um, that I know of. <laughs> it's it. Um, but it was, I was really nervous for it. And it was, I was surprised how quick and seamless and how little pain uh Clark was in. Like he really was a champ. Um, but I know Nikki was asked a couple questions on reducing potentially or things that you could do for your baby when they're circumcised to reduce pain. Is there anything that you can do in that, that circumstance or, or when they're actually getting the procedure? Yeah. So your experience is very typical, right? Usually it's very quick, very painless, but you know, they do, they're a little fussy afterwards potentially. And so, you know, you just want to comfort them. So allow them to breastfeed. If you're breastfeeding, give them a pacifier if you feel comfortable with that, Um, you know, but just be more comforting and more, you know, keep them close to you and, and, and give them that comfort that they need. But otherwise, you know, and then you could put some Vaseline on the area twice a day, which the doctor will usually tell you to do. And, and that's really it. And they do fine. They really do well. Yeah, it was, I mean, I was surprised how I was concerned about it and it was very seamless. And even the upkeep of just keeping it clean and everything was, was not bad at all. Um, but I've, I've heard, I've heard friends that have had a lot worse, like, uh, in terms of just after the fact and, and making sure, you know, changing the diapers and just it being a little more traumatizing for them than, than my experience was thankfully. It's so, it's so interesting that like, I mean, like, why is this so, I mean, maybe you can shed light on it. Like, and you made a comment before you're like, you know, pretty much everyone who's a urologist has, you know, it's more common for for physicians to to circumcise their sons, but there's also this whole movement. And I've noticed, cause there's even like a Netflix documentary about it. Like it's all about like pushing people, you're shaking your head. You're like, I know (laughs) about keeping boys intact and the consent and like, I mean, what's, I don't even remember what it's called. Um, I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched some of it, but it was definitely like, it feels like even on Instagram posts and social media, like there's a lot of like 
pressure press or um, pushing to to really keep men intact. That's what I've heard. And there's hashtags about it. So, and yet like, you know, I've got obviously like, I think we can all agree that like, it's such a personal decision, but where do you think this controversy comes from? Well, I do know that there is a very vocal minority of people who've had circumcisions, regret it and, and really talk about it quite often. And they try to, um, make it, you know, similar to female genital mutilation, which is not the same thing. Um, Female genital mutilation can involve, you know, actually cutting the clitoris or covering the clitoris, which is much different than cutting foreskin. Um, And then another thing is, you know, people are concerned about the sensitivity because they believe that that foreskin has more nerve endings. But actually, when you look at the data, like under a microscope, where they looked at nerve endings, right, they found that the nerves for erotic pleasure come from these nerve endings called the genital corpuscles. And those are on corpuscles, sorry. And those are actually on the glands of the penis, the ridge of the penis. And so people think that they're coming from that foreskin because it's it's basically tugging that area when you pull your foreskin back. And so it feels very erotic and pleasurable. And so people are very concerned about their pleasure. And, and you know, I don't want to minimize anyone who's feeling bad about having had a circumcision or, or feeling that they've, you know, that's their, that's their experience. And I can't speak to that, but, you know, from a, from a scientific standpoint, those nerve endings are just like nerve endings anywhere else in your body. They perceive temperature, pressure, light touch, firm touch, but so does the rest of your penis. They're not different than anywhere else. And so removing that bit of foreskin from a scientific perspective shouldn't change your ability to perceive pleasure. That's really good to know. I mean, be, I mean, it, and yeah, it's a lot of, I guess, um, I can, yeah, I, 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 it's a big topic because there's, you know, like, no kidding. You don't want, like you said, you don't want to minimize people who have gone through this and obviously are being vocal about it. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's interesting to hear the statistics as well in that, you know, ours is like a cultural, you know, it's traditional and in, in the Jewish religion. And that is the decision that we made. Um, but many people, you know, like you, Nikki, it's like, okay, so what will we do? And yeah. you're weighing out your choices. Um, so it's, and it's such a big decision that you are making on behalf of your, of your baby, right? Yeah, it's a lot less common. Like we have a lot of European family and it's much, much, much less common in Europe. So, and you're nodding your head. Yes, Dr. Malik. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, I guess often too, like that also plays into it, right? Like, you know, what did your parents do and your grandparents do? And and it's sort of that gets passed down. Um, You know, we've got a lot of Italian roots and like Irish roots and that's just a little different down there over there. Yeah, a lot of people want their child to look like them, right? Dads want their child to look exactly like them a lot of the time. And so that does play a role in it. And and I would say to your comment about physicians getting circumcised, I think for urologists specifically, it's because we see some complications of having foreskin as an older person. And then, you know, that's the reason. But again, we're biased because we see the complications and those complications are rare. And so I don't want anyone to feel like they should make that decision based on that specific comment that you made. Because again, we're biased. We see what we see. Yeah. I think we all just, this is like such an exercise of like, you know, 
I guess, really just making a decision, doing the research, figuring out what you're comfortable with and like, you know, really just going off of that. And I also think it's important that we doesn't become contentious of each other, right? Like people can do different things and that's okay, right? We can all, we can all just do what works for us. Clark and Hendrick will still be best friends. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he's not mad later when I've told the world, like the state of his, you know, (laughs) same. They're both going to be like, God, mom, (laughs) stop. Don't worry. There'll be like some other new technology. No one will be able to find this episode by then. (laughs) Yeah. What's a podcast? Exactly. (laughs) This new podcast? Oh, man. Ancient. It's so true. It's so true. Okay. What else does anyone need to know? We've covered three topics. You know, I know we, we could probably, I would like to get more into like, you know, the darker side of like female genital mutilation. I think that's a big one, but we're not going to go there today. We don't have the time and that deserves its own episode, but specifically about, you know, everything from vasectomies to erectile dysfunction to circumcision, like that's a lot. That could have been three different episodes, but like, tell us what is it that like, if there's anything that we haven't asked, is there anything else you want to say regarding any of that? All I will say is I know a lot of women listen to this podcast. So encourage your partners to go see a urologist, encourage your partners to take the step, go with them, help them and, and support them because they need that push. And I think they'll be grateful for it. They'll get to ask those questions. They're not, that they're worried about. And also, you know, check out my channel, tell your, tell your partners to check out my channel. I have tons of great content about sexual health. And I get a lot of comments from men that they've learned so much that they didn't ever get to know about their own bodies. So um, that would be my last comment and and really I think it's so great to everyone who's listening that you're listening to this for, about your partner or future partner or or whatever and uh and thank you I love it you on your Instagram is amazing you had a whole post oh. on like where does sperm come from and like how is semen made I was like whoa like I need to binge this <laughs> oh I did binge it last night I was just like whoa I'm learning so much <laughs> It's so good. It's really Thank good. You. It's really good. And for, for women like to look at and learn and then for men, totally like, absolutely. So thanks so much for taking the time coming on. And, uh, yeah, we've covered so many topics, um, and it's been so informative. So we're definitely, we need to have you come back on and we'll go into all of the pelvic health. And I don't know, Nikki wants to get into fistulas. fistulas. So we'll, define what that is in the next time we have you on. Um, But appreciate, appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at we go there podcast and check out we go there podcast.com for more info.